We want the ocean to be able to rest and every minute that there isn't a fisherman in the water actively fishing is an added minute that the ocean can rest and produce fish and, and grow. Hi, I'm Jay Ruderman and welcome to All About Change, a podcast showcasing individuals who leverage the hardships that have been thrown at them to better other people's lives. This is all wrong. I, I say um, put mental health first because if you don't... This generation of America has already had enough. I stand before you not as an expert, but as a concerned citizen. This week on All About Change, Jean Wiener, Executive Director at Faux Probeam, the Foundation for the Protection of Marine Biodiversity. I don't think you can go anywhere in Haiti now and not find some type of plastic somewhere, even on the furthest reaches of certain mountains uh, where you think it would be pristine. Jean was born and raised in Haiti. Over the years, he saw his country transformed by conflict and also by pollution. But addressing the problem has been easier said than done. At first, we were really met with a lot of anger and disdain. Spike gaining ground with local governments and establishing himself as the nation's most acclaimed environmentalist, the fight to clean up Haiti is confronting Jean with some impossible dilemmas. I would never expect someone to come up to me and say, okay, you have to stop doing your, your job for just simply a month or two. Because it'll be, how am I going to feed my family? How am I going to send kids to school and all of that? Thank you so much for joining us on All About Change. I'm very excited to speak to you. I've learned a lot about your work. First, let me start off by asking you, you grew up in Haiti. Can you tell us what that was like? In Haiti, we were not really one of the poorer families in the country, to put it simply. Uh, I was able to grow up and go to private school have a have a really good education. Uh, the situation while I was growing up was very different, clearly, than what it is now. And for me, growing up, things were 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 not bad. I mean, uh, we had a good life with the family. We participated in community activities. Growing up, went to the beach a lot, uh, and that's where my love for the environment and for the coastal and marine ecosystems came in. Can you, Jean, talk a little bit about the natural beauty of Haiti? For most of our listeners who probably have never been there, and perhaps go back to when you were a child and you visited the ocean and what the country looked like then, and what is the situation ecologically now? Well, we'll start when I was a, a kid. To me, being a kid growing up in Haiti was just amazing. The treat of being able to go to the beach all the time with my parents practically every weekend was just something which really guided my, my future. That led me to talking to local fishermen, talking to uh, sailors, talking to everyone working in the coastal and marine environment. Back then, at least, I know that things had already begun to deteriorate, but beautiful, non-polluted beaches, incredible seafood, conch, lobster, snapper, and other things you can think of, beautiful mountain forests, and everything you can think of as an idyllic Caribbean country. But slowly over the years, even in the short time frame of up until I was probably 17 or 18 years old, 
uh, even in that time frame, the realization that less fish were becoming available to the fishermen, seeing marine debris wash up on the shores, plastics, um, toothbrushes and sandals and plastic bags and, and all of that type of, of, of trash starting to wash up on the beaches. I don't think you can go anywhere in Haiti now and not find some type of plastic somewhere, even on the furthest reaches of certain mountains uh, where you think it would be pristine. We've tried to do beach cleanups in certain areas where almost the entire beach is just plastic. We kept on digging down and removing trash, and the deeper we dig, the more trash we'd find. So there are places where where the beaches are just entirely made of plastic debris now. Don't get me wrong, there are still a lot of places where beaches are beautiful, sandy, water is great, but we do have a lot of the normal problems which are developing now around the world, which should not be normal, with a lot of plastic waste everywhere. I've heard you talk about the snapper, the fish that was caught when you grew up and now seeing fish the size of your pinky. What is the situation of marine life in Haiti right now? Haiti, at least in the Caribbean, is probably the most overfished country in in our region. And that has a lot to do with the poverty, with the extreme poverty which Haiti is going through, which, which it is experiencing. People who may not normally have taken up fishing as a part of their, their normal work life have now entered the fishing community, if you will, and are using methods and fishing techniques which are unsustainable and are causing damage to the marine environment and therefore reducing the fisheries. The biggest problem, of course, starting with the poverty issue, is that as fish become more and more scarce, the methods for catching them become more and more extreme. So if you had, just a quick example, if you had a fishing net, for example, which had a five-inch mesh and there are less and less fish, your natural processing is going to be, well, if I can't catch fish because the mesh is five inches, I'm going to make it smaller. And then you make it smaller and you catch a little bit more fish. And then that becomes a little bit less and that cycle repeats itself and repeats itself. And now people are fishing in many places with mesh sizes about a quarter of an inch to a point where it's often joked about that they're fishing with bed sheets because the, the mesh sizes have gotten so small. So that is causing serious issues in which fish that would normally be allowed to grow to a marketable size, depending on, on the species, of course, but to a, a nice marketable size, are now being harvested at, as you said, pinky size. You can't even clean those fish to be able to put them, for example, in a plate with rice. What is primarily done is that they're almost used just as seasoning. They're put in a sauce and a gravy, whole. It's almost like um, flavor cubes or something. We've seen buckets and wheelbarrows full of this type of catch, where if those fish were left to, to grow to adult size, instead of selling for maybe the equivalent of 10 US dollars, you would have easily 
four or five thousand US dollars worth of fish if those fish were allowed to build to normal size. And it becomes a question of, again, the poverty. How do you tell someone not to, to catch something that they're going to eat for that day or which is going to be able to provide for their family for that day or to send a kid to school or to pay a medical bill? Yeah, I, I know that you've said in the past, often when you approach people who are involved in fishing, uh, you're approaching with a full belly and they're on an empty belly. And that's a very difficult conversation. People have to survive. And I believe that the average income in Haiti is a dollar a day. So how do you approach people who are overfishing and say, if you hold back on the fishing for a while and let the, the fish grow, that will benefit you? When at the same time, as you said, they have to feed their families. Yeah, that's our biggest problem, of course. I would never expect someone to come up to me and say, okay, you have to stop doing your, your job for just simply a month or two because um, it'll be, how am I going to feed my family? How am I going to send kids to school and all of that? So you're dealing in a, with a situation in which you can't even ask for a delay of one day. So what we try to do is, on one hand, try to provide the fishers, the fishing communities, with alternative methods of fishing, which are more environmentally friendly and sustainable, so that they can catch larger fish and hopefully less of them, so that the fish can reach reproductive age and, and grow to a decent size, while also, on the other hand, providing them with other methods what we call alternative income generating methods, such as uh, breadfruit flour, apiculture, um, beekeeping, and hopefully we're going to be able to get into mariculture, which is seaweed farming soon as well. So being able to provide the alternatives is key. One of our biggest issues, even along those lines, is that we're dealing almost entirely with peer pressure. Because of the weaknesses in the government, there's no law enforcement available whatsoever. So it's left to us to try to convince the fishers that this is a better way to do what they're doing without relying on any type of, of penalties whatsoever from the government if they don't abide and participate in this type of, of change. I mean, you really have, really, really have to take a holistic approach to all of this, taking everything which is happening into consideration. Because if you just try to pick out one component here and there, it's not going to work. The rest is going to fall apart. So to the extent that you feel comfortable, Haiti's going through potentially the worst time in its history right now. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, for the past few years, uh, we could say probably three, four or five years, even the security situation in the country has continued to deteriorate. This culminated a couple of years ago, actually July 7th, 2021, with the assassination of our president. And from then gangs have taken over a large swaths of the capital, Port-au-Prince, and have engaged in extortion, uh, kidnapping, rape. 
If the gangs come to invade us, we will defend ourselves. We have our own weapons. We have our machetes. We will take their weapons. We will not run away. Mothers who want to protect their children can send them elsewhere. And we must remember also that 99.99% of the people who are in Haiti right now have nothing to do with this. They just want to get along, get on with their lives, you know, take their kids to school in peace. It's really a tough situation. I'm always extremely saddened whenever I think about it. Um, when I'm doing my field work, it's in my face all day long. And um, we're just hoping for uh, some type of, of outcome in which peace can be reestablished. When you're in the field and, and your organization is working, does the political situation infringe upon your work at all? In a lot of what we do, the situation has begun to deteriorate in terms of our ability to interact and even to trust a lot of the local government officials. Again, we try to work with them as best as we can, but there is a lot of corruption at many different levels. And it's, it's our ability, I think, to be able to determine when we're being the, the target of a shakedown, if you will, because we are often in that position where local government officials will, you know, hedge and haw and ask us, can you help us out with this? Can you help me out with that? Can you provide a participation, in quotes, uh, from FOPROBIM to undertake this or that activity for which they can get credit and gain brownie points with the local communities? So it's, it's a delicate dance in trying to not participate in the corruption and yet being able to undertake our work and keep everybody happy at the same time. So it's already an extremely difficult situation working in Haiti and having this added to it is really making work uh, very, very difficult. And on top of that, the logistics that we have to go through now to move things around the country to do our work to move people from one location to another to be able to undertake, for example, educational activities is complicated by the gangs that block the roads, that kidnap people and are and can be extremely violent and take your stuff, take your equipment out of your car or even take your car if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. It sounds extremely challenging for your staff and I'm sorry for the situation that your country is going through. And, and hope that things will get better. So, Jean, can you talk about how you came up with the idea and founded your NGO, FOPROBIM, and was the focus of your work trying to influence legislation in Haiti or trying to change facts on the ground through operations? Well, FOPROBIM started as a purely scientific research organization uh, with the goal of working to try to protect and manage coastal and marine resources because, again, I was friends with fishers and they kept on telling me about how bad the fishing was becoming. It quickly became obvious that we were not going to be able to, to protect and manage the coastal and marine environment as we would like without beginning to engage those who were for lack of a better word, exploiting the resources. 
So we began entering into more collaborative agreements with uh, the fishermen, with the fishing associations, fishing cooperatives, trying to really engage these stakeholders, these, uh, these fishermen in working on trying to better their livelihoods. At first, we were really met with a lot of anger and um, disdain, even to a certain level. But we explain, we have the question for the fishermen. What do you want? They say, we want better and more fish, and we want to have good and sustainable livelihoods and to make a good living for our families. And we tell them, what do we want at Fopurbim? We want better, bigger fish so that you can have a more sustainable livelihood for your families. So we're actually coming at the issue from two different ends, perhaps, but the end goal is the same. We are not an organization that enters a community and tells them what their problem is. You enter the communities and we ask, what do you need in terms of fisheries, since that is our domain, in terms of protecting the coastal and marine environment, and work with them to provide income-generating activities, uh, gear swaps, educational activities, and things along those lines. Jean, can you talk about a success story where you've gone into a community and the community has been able to change their situation? And as a juxtaposition, what NGOs do wrong and how to effectively work in a country like Haiti and how not to effectively work there? So for us, let's say our favorite success stories are the stories in which the local communities were provided with a certain amount of training and equipment and took that and really ran with it. Uh, one of the communities which we work with, uh, we had undertaken certain small mangrove restoration activities with them. We had provided them with uh, training and uh, beehives so that they can start agricultural activities for the communities. And we recently provided them with a couple of kayaks so that when they have their local annual village party, uh, they could use them and, and at other times, but they could use those kayaks to generate a little bit of income, renting them out to uh, local tourists to generate a little bit more income for the community. So that community actually uh, doubled the amount of hives that we had provided with them initially and are now uh, one of the larger honey producers in the area where we work. They had taken some of the money that they made from helping us undertake some of the mangrove restoration and took a previously defunct uh, fish pond and restarted the fish pond and were able to generate income from fish grown in that fish pond. They expanded their activity with the kayaks that we had provided them and included even other fishers' boats because there was demand for um, some of the now ecotourism activities that they were undertaking and were generating more money from, from that. Just have to remember uh, something which I had put in my mind from the very beginning is that we want 
the ocean to be able to rest. And every minute that there isn't a fisherman in the water actively fishing is an added minute that the ocean can rest and reproduce fish and produce fish and, and grow. So being able to provide some of these coastal communities with alternatives, as you said before, the aquaculture, the ecotourism, and uh, other types of activities. So what we really look for often is just that, the ability of the local communities to not depend on us 100% for new activities and for their survival. Uh, whenever we undertake activities, we always ask local communities for a counterpart input. So if we provide them with beehives, for example, we ask that they provide the land where the hives can be installed, that they clear the land and manage the beehives so for themselves so that they have skin in the game. For the kayaking, for example, uh, we ask that they develop a place and develop a method and a system where they can store the kayaks and generate enough income so that they can upkeep the kayaks so that they, they can continue to use them. Some other organizations, and in many cases, we know that they're just there to check the box. We are 100% against just giving things away. Uh, there's a saying in Haiti that if you don't need it, I certainly don't need it. So if you just give things away, it's never appreciated. If you provide people with a leg up and they have to provide some skin, they have to put some skin into the game as well, they will appreciate it more. They will work more to be able to, to grow it and expand it and use it versus if you just give things away. For the boats and the motors, for example, that activity, we warned that organization not to do it because that's not the way things work in Haiti. Project lasted, I mean, they gave boats to organizations probably over the course of a year. This was probably 10 or 12 years ago, maybe. Uh, so right now, there are no boats left. There are no motors left. Either they broke down and or were sold to people for a quick buck because the people, again, did not have any skin in the game. Can you talk a little bit about why mangroves are important to the environment and what is the threat to mangroves in Haiti right now? Sure. The mangroves in Haiti help protect the coastline and the coastal communities, importantly, from the frequent hurricanes that we have. They break the waves. It helps to keep houses from being blown away uh, when you have that, that line of mangroves along the shoreline. And critically, they serve as fish nurseries. Um, a large majority of the fish that the fishermen are catching have at least part of their life cycle within the mangrove forest and the mangrove roots. So they are, for coastal communities at least, incredibly important. And the issues that we're having in Haiti is that they unfortunately also make very good charcoal. And Haiti has a fuel issue. We're still using pretty much just wood, uh, either raw wood or 
wood transformed into charcoal in order to provide fuel for cooking primarily. And we're losing, I think estimates are anywhere from, from two and a half to 5%. We're losing that amount of mangrove forest cover every year in Haiti uh, as it's being converted into charcoal. We are replanting mangrove forests. Uh, I think we're probably up at about 2 million trees at this point over our past couple of decades. But we don't want either to be planting mangrove trees just to have them cut down and turned into charcoal. So we undertake educational activities and again provide with alternatives and really try to explain to the local communities the importance of the mangroves to protecting their lives when there's a, an event such as a big hurricane. Let's talk about one of the successes that uh, your organization has had in creating the first marine conservation area in Haiti, the Three Bays Protected Area. How did that become a reality and what does that mean for the country? Well, as we'd like to say, uh, we're an overnight success. It only took us 30 years to succeed in doing that. Haiti has had protected areas on land for decades, I think back into the 1930s even. Uh, I had always found it weird that we were a tropical Caribbean island and at that point, the only island in the Caribbean that did not have a marine protected area. And we're not managing or trying to manage or protect our coastal marine resources, which are an absolutely critical part of our country and always has been. We're an island, so we have the ocean, we have beaches, we have coastal marine resources, which need to and should be protected. So a lot of lobbying, uh, if you want to call it that, begging and pleading was more like it, to government officials over the years. And finally, I think the, the stars aligned and we, we ended up with a government that was open to being able to develop marine protected areas, as well as at that time, I think a lot of the international donors were also behind being able to develop Haiti's first marine protected areas. So a lot of preparation, a lot of research, a lot of documents in terms of why they should be done, where they should be done. And um, just moving forward with that was, was really probably the, the capstone of what we've been able to do and the legacy that we'll be able to leave behind. Our outlook on that was kind of the, the saying, you know, if you build it, they will come. And what we felt was that if we were able to establish the protected areas and show that there was not only government interest, but other local interest from NGOs and other stakeholders to develop a protected area, a marine protected area, that the support would follow, whether it be from local communities, whether it be from local uh, organizations or the international organizations. And that has certainly been the case. Uh, we've been able to draw in support from a lot of different sectors to be able to engage with local communities inside the protected areas and to be able to move forward with a lot of the initiatives which we've been doing for the past decades. 
how can people get involved with your organization? And what can our listeners do who are motivated to try to do something to improve the situation in Haiti? Well, for us, we do take donations at uh, foprobim.org, F-O-P-R-O-B-I-M.org. And that does help us move forward with, with a lot of our activities. But there are so many people and have spoken to so many Haitians, um, both inside and outside of Haiti, who want to help but don't really know how, and others who are really moving forward with a lot of their initiatives and trying to get things going, whether it be businesses, to help local people, um, education activities for schools, health activities, and those types of things. Everyone has a skill. And if you could tap into that skill and um, put it to work, and if you can't, on the other hand, join a group which is helping out. And you can pick which sector you'd like to help the, the, the most in. We know right now that the situation in Haiti is very difficult. A lot of people would like to go down and help, but are afraid to. And if you can't, then again, all of these different organizations are, are there and have people on the ground and are doing really, really good stuff. Well, John, I want to thank you so much for being my guest on All About Change. Thank you for all the work that you've done over the course of your life to protect the marine environment in Haiti. Thank you so much, and, and I really appreciated our discussion. Thank you, Jay. Au revoir, but not goodbye. Jean's work is unique, but he shares a lot in common with other activists I've spoken to. The strive for change often collides with basic human survival needs. The situation in Haiti is complicated. What do you think should be done? Tweet us at Jay Ruderman and let us know what you think. That's our show for today. Come back in two weeks. We're going to stick with the oceans for another episode. Emily Penn, who is an ocean activist, will teach us about the surprising link between microplastics, pollution, and female health. Today's episode was produced by Kim Wong, with story editing by Yochai Metal and Mijon Zulu. To check out more episodes or learn more about the show, you can visit our website, allaboutchangepodcast.com. If you like our show, spread the word. Tell a friend or family member or leave us a review on your favorite podcasting app. We would really appreciate it. All About Change is produced by the Ruderman Family Foundation. Special thanks to our production team at Pod People, David Zwick, Grace Pina, Morgan Foos, Brian Rivers, and Amy Machado. That's all for now. I'm Jay Ruderman, and we'll see you next time on All About Change. But not good.